Sergio Connor, second to the 18th. Lovely flight. It's a shame it's 25 hours left. I'm gonna leave y'all in one thought and I'm gonna leave. I'm a big believer in fate. I have a good feeling about this. That's all I'm gonna tell you. Oh, would you look at that? It's a foreigner, man. <laughs> <laughs> Best thing to give my face. I know you're nervous, but I'm too. Touch your class, baby. Touch your class. Touch your class. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Three Off the Tee podcast. It's Ian here, and this is episode 47. Our special guest today is Cameron McCormick, who's best known for being the coach of three time major champion Jordan Speed. Firstly though, we want to talk about our sponsors, Flowgas Ireland, um, delighted to have them with us, great supporters, really couldn't do the, the pod without them and no better time to be talking about Flowgas Ireland considering we're in the depths of winter at the moment, the temperatures are plumbing outside and there's no one better to keep us warm than Flowgas. You can save money and help the environment with Flowgas Green Future. All Flowgas customers receive 100% green electricity. Customers on the Green Future tariff receive carbon neutral natural gas. You can also switch from oil to flow gas LPG home heat and you'll receive 1200 litres of LPG free. Terms and conditions apply. Please see flowgas.ie forward slash home heat. You can also receive a 20 euro gift house voucher when you switch from electricity or dual fuel online at flowgas.ie. They've also given us a voucher this week, uh, guys and girls. So and for your chance to win a 100 euro voucher, Given that we're chatting to Cameron McCormick, all you have to do is answer this simple question. At what venue did Jordan Speed win the Masters in 2015? Was it A, Augusta, or B, Athlone? Please DM us on, your on our Facebook page with your answer. Okay, back to today. Delighted to get Cameron on the show. Uh, I've been chatting over back and say for the well over six weeks, let's say, about uh, setting this up. So a couple of weeks back, I managed to grab him for a little over an hour where we chatted how he got into coaching, moving from Melbourne to Texas, uh, his approach to coaching, and we delve a little deeper there and get his opinion on a few kind of typical situations that I or every PGA professional encounters during their career. We also talk about the Earn Your Edge podcast, which he co-hosts with Corey Lumberg. Meeting a 12-year-old Jordan Spieth and becoming his coach, the Ultras Performance Centre and much more. So, okay, here about sit back and listen to Mr. Cameron McCormick. Okay, today's guest is one of the most sought-after coaches in world golf, originally from Melbourne, Australia. He moved to the United States as a teenager to Texas Tech University, where he accepted a golf scholarship. He subsequently moved into the world of coaching, first at uh, Brook Hollow Golf in Dallas, and then on to the City Soros Trinity Forest. It was there in 2005 that he met and started coaching a 12-year-old Jordan Speed. Needless to say, Cameron's success has not been limited to his work with Jordan Speed. He's coached more than 20 PGA champions, Web.com and LPGA Tour 
players as well as five, I think, of the last eight USGA Junior Amateur Champions. He's also a Golf Magazine Top 100 coach and in 2005 was named PJ of America's Teacher of the Year. Cameron McCormick, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Those are... Uh... Those are pretty heavy uh, credentials to live up to now. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure whatsoever, Cameron. Exactly. No whatsoever. As I feel I said, like I'm on the, the first team of a major championship right now. <laughs> yeah. well, I told you last, I hope you had a great night's sleep because it's going to be intense. So, yeah. um, look, we go about a little bit of an introduction, right? Um, growing up in Australia, why golf and then say moving to Texas? Uh, why golf? It uh, was a sport that I kind of fell back into. When I say fell back into it, there are other things that I wanted to do growing up as a, a young person from age probably five years old all the way to about 13 years old. I wanted to follow in dad's footsteps and he was an Aussie rules football player. So um, you guys would be familiar with Gaelic football and our version of that was Aussie rules football. And at about 13 years old, I developed or matured pretty late and everyone else around me was getting bigger and stronger and it became a much more difficult game for me to play. Um, in conjunction with that, I was playing tennis at the time and had visions of uh, being a professional tennis player. You know, I think every Aussie kid, um, if they're, it's not both genders, it's certainly the boys, we grew up with visions of being a professional athlete in some way or participating in sport in some way. And so my heroes back then were well, principally Pat Cash, but there are a range of other uh, Aussie tennis players as well, Pat Rafter uh, being one of them, and had a tennis court really close to where we're at. So it was very easy for me to get to a tennis court, and that lasted until about age 15 or 16 when um, I kind of fell in love with, I fell out of love with the sport. Um, many would call it burnout. I think I just realized that I wasn't getting as good as fast as what I wanted to get. And uh, people around me were getting better. And so in falling back into golf, I was introduced to golf probably around eight, nine, 10 years old by my dad and my uncle. My uncle was a, a very fanatical golfer and I really didn't enjoy the sport very much at all. But uh, the school had a program uh, wherein if you weren't involved in any other sport, which I wasn't at the time, having dropped football and tennis, you had to do something else. And so that program was afternoon golf. And so I did that and I got really good really quick at about age 15 and a half, 16, to where uh, my first handicap, my first official club handicap was, was 10, which may not seem like a lot for anyone listening to, or it's very good for anyone listening to America, but the way the handicap system existed then in Australia and probably still exists to this day and um, all over the UK and Ireland is a 10 handicap is a legit stick. It's a legit player. And then very quickly went from a 10 to a four and then down to scratch in probably 18 months. And so I was so ate up with uh, the sport at age 17, I, um, I started caddying on the Australasian tour for a couple of guys that uh, had just moved down from uh, America who just graduated from college. And this was pre-internet days, which I know dates me for anyone listening out there that's um, a decent amount younger than I am. Um, but given it was pre-internet, I had no idea that you could go to college and play a sport, let alone play my sport, which was then golf. Uh, in Australia, you go to university, you don't play anything but a club sport. You're certainly not on, on, on any type of scholarship. And you're really going to school to um, get an education to then work professionally, right? Um, so to know that you could go to school, play a sport uh, with a vision to that kind of extend your, um, your runway, so to speak, to where you could continue to develop your skills and essentially get paid for it on the scholarship, 
was everything that I wanted to do. So uh, about six months later, they had connected me with the right people. And I found myself over here in America. And in my first two years were actually in Kansas at a small junior college at an oil and gas town just east of Wichita, Kansas. So in the middle of the country and uh, my knowledge prior to going to Wichita, Kansas was uh, The Wizard of Oz and Dorothy. And uh, getting, getting, getting there, it was in, in many ways the same, wind swept and in many ways, many ways different. Kansas was very similar to kind of rural Victoria where my parents grew up, at least the town that I was in. So there were lots, lots that was familiar to me and a lot that wasn't. And then ultimately continued to get better and landed myself a scholarship at Texas Tech, which is way out in West Texas and um, another kind of uh, rural city of about 175,000 people that offered an opportunity to be in a, a little bigger town, but still develop my golf game. Cool. All right. Um, if we go on a little bit, member of the PGA are qualifying as a PGA uh, qualifying a good few years back now. It was it was getting a good understanding, I suppose, of the ball flight laws. Um, but but that was it. I mean, really, just just to get your your degree in professional golf, but to increase your knowledge, uh, I suppose, a more thorough understanding of the body. Uh, how important has the, the the area of biomechanics been? It was an understanding a person's golf swing, and now I suppose it's a necessity to be a coach. Never mind a good or a great coach. Yeah, I think if you kind of um, take a, a approach of looking at it in two ways, number one, have there been great coaches in years past that had very little understanding of whether it's the nuance of biomechanics as it relates to evaluation of um, people, their movement and their movement of the club, um, or the underlying like branches of um, study that you can uh, kind of embark on that might branch off from that uh, biomechanics being kinematics, but also the kinetics, the forces that then someone would apply. And the answer is no. And even going deeper than that, if you just kind of the, the precursor courses to getting into the specialization of biomechanics, which would be anatomy and physiology under the, under the heading of kinesiology, uh, other go golf coaches historically that have been fantastic. The, the people that we long to read stuff from and look at videos from, or even prior to that in the, in the 20s and 30s that coached or taught golf that had no real understanding or basis of um, in those scientific kind of domains? The answer is yes, they had no understanding of those, but yet they were still great coaches. So um, there's a lot to the art of coaching that is um, maybe not necessarily hinged on the cornerstone of understanding human movement or understanding anatomy and physiology as a base. Having said that, on the other side of that, there is certainly a growing percentage of instructors that we might call colleagues and at the same time competitors, right? It's a cutthroat business where we're, we're, yeah. we're hunting exactly. for more and we're farming the business yeah. that we do currently have that are upskilling in those areas. And when they sprinkle some of the language of biomechanics, some of the language of anatomy into their YouTube videos or Instagram videos or posts online where in the eyes of ourselves, perhaps, but most definitely the eyes of our consumers, our, our target clientele, we're seen to be less than when we aren't able to have those conversations and speak very similar language and understand very similar concepts. Um, so you can be great without knowing that. You can be great by being a great player and teaching someone to play the game, how you learn to play the game. But there's 
certainly a movement that requires an education in those areas, in my opinion. And so for any young or developing coach out there to not have knowledge in those domains is to probably um, fall quicker behind this groundswell of, um, of, of coaches that do have um, a handle on that. Um, look, I suppose best known for coaching Jordan, okay? And many of us have heard the story about how you and Jordan met, but I suppose aware of uh, the story of when you went out, watched him, I think, play nine holes, set him up with a challenge on that last green with three different mm -hmm. shots with a, a kind of a nice reward if he was successful. Sure. Um, now, but before you start, I suppose, st stories get embellished over the years, right? Uh, how the myth becomes a legend. And you, and then you watch a, a documentary on, say, the likes of Lionel Messi, who's one of the, the best footballers that's ever been. You see him at 10 years of age dribbling past uh, an entire team and then repeatedly doing it and doing it. I suppose I put this... This story in the same same category as it, it is quite unbelievable what it was. And um, look, if you wouldn't please uh, mind telling our listeners. Yeah, uh, it was 2006. So many of your facts in the introduction were correct. But that one was uh, a year later. Not that that really matters. But anyway, he shows up. He's just short of his uh, 13th birthday. So he's, he's still 12. And um, as part of the evaluation, it's essential that we coaches, instructors see someone on the golf course in the situations that they're going to invariably face themselves versus on a sterile driving range. So I take him out on the golf course and suggest to him that we play a set of tees that's challenging. And he said, yeah, sure. Let's play all the way back. Having known um, in advance of taking him on the golf course that the skills are pretty darn good. I mean, he just shot 63 in a, in an event um, a matter of days prior to our meeting and won, and won the event going away in a bolt. Anyway, um, we go on the golf course and he's demonstrating great ball control. I'm thinking, well, I'm really not seeing um, that secondary or tertiary set of skills, which is the scrambling ability to salvage around when things go awry. And so I said to Jordan, look, uh, we're going to test your short game because I'm not getting much of an opportunity to do that in these last three holes. And I said, I'm going to pick three up and down situations on each hole, a total of nine. And if you play them uh, better than I think the total was three over par or three over par or better, um, so getting up and down six out of nine times, essentially, uh, there's going to be a prize at the end. And that was a hat from the local golf shop. Uh, and he wasn't doing all that great until the last hole. In fact, I think he made uh, four bogeys in the first six attempts. And so he was outside that, let's say, reward threshold. And um, I felt like he was losing a bit of the um, confidence, the, the, the Pepinese step that he had throughout the entire, uh, let's say nine holes. And, um, prior to that, the interview process, the evaluation. And so I made the first chip easy on the last hole and, um, he held it a little, little simple chip shot from off the green. And then the second one, I gave him a bunker shot because I hadn't seen a bunker shot before that. I didn't select a bunker shot and he hit this sick little spinning bunker shot that I've only seen at least to that point, uh, from very advanced professionals. And that stood out in my mind as something that was pretty, um, pretty special. But uh, given that he held that first shot, he was right on that um, that incentive line. He, he got it back to three of a par on the uh, the eight shots prior to that. And I didn't know whether I was impressing him enough to keep him on as a client, given it was just like a a feeling out, a, a first date, so to speak, right? And so I made that last shot really difficult. Um, number one, because I didn't want to give him a hat on the on the, the first uh, <laughs> meeting. And number two, I really wanted to test him and see if he had the medal um, as best you can in um, kind of like a practice nine holes. 
And so that made a really difficult uh, kind of flop shot out of a Bermuda grass lie sitting down there. And he sets his club behind the ball and he makes this really interesting kind of evaluation on how the ball is sitting because that informs for advanced golfers out there. We would know this, what you're able to do with the golf ball. And that struck uh, me. And the next part is he walks down to the green and evaluates where he needs to land this in my mind to get close, thinking he was just trying to get it close. And um, then he comes back to the ball, he dresses it. And before he swings, he looks up at me, kind of gives me a glance and, uh, that, that says, kind of watch this. It doesn't say anything, but kind of like, okay, look at me, watch this. And then he, go, he proceeds to hit it and he hits it and it lands exactly where he, at least as best I could understand, uh, made an evaluation to land it. And it trickles down, hits the flag and goes in. And I was just flabbergasted. My jaw hit the, hit the green that I was standing on. And I look from the flag back at him and he points to me and he says, how about that hat? As if, like, I, I go back from time to time, particularly in our telling story, I go back and think about what might have been going through his mind the entire time. And as I kind of replay the series of events that preceded him pointing to me and, says, and saying, how about that hat? Everything was looking like he had full intent to hold the shot versus just trying to get it close and get up and down and, and save his position, save his place at three over mm. par which is a mindset piece that you can try and teach someone. You can try and put them into a place to learn to try and take it deeper and deeper and deeper. And all the conversations that we have with the best players in the world on our podcast, probably like yours, echo the sentiment that when they get the bit between their teeth as a horse racing metaphor, they run as fast as they possibly can. They don't feel afraid that they're trying to protect something. They feel like they have command over their skill and they're not worried. They're not concerned. They're not scared to keep the pedal down. Now, sure, situations change and you change taxi, tactics based on your position. We've got a, a phone conversation coming up with Mark Leishman later today. And one of the questions we're going to ask Mark is, Mark, when you've won, you've won by a bolt. He won his first nationwide tour yeah, event, yeah, yeah. winning by sure. 11 shots. 11 shots. He, yeah. he, he, I think he won the Travelers Championship by six shots when he won. And he's the perfect person to ask the question, when you get that, that bit between your teeth, where is that instinct come from to keep that pedal down? And that's what Jim and uh, Jordan demonstrated in that very first, uh, first session. Um, but just going to that a little bit. So we have a golfer and you, you, you definitely, you see him on the range every day of the week. You see fantastic players and we've all seen players come and go. Um, can, can you help along or can a player that's timid become a tiger? Not pardon the pun, but a tiger woods. Yeah. Um, or does it, do you understand where I'm coming from? Like, or I know there's golf psychology, there's sports psychology coaches out there and yes, they make a huge difference, but is it really, they have to have that confidence from a young age or have you seen it where, yeah, as I said, timid to tiger. Yeah. I'll give you two views. And the first one I'll come back to. My view is, yes, you can. Um, but before I get to explaining the yes, you can or the how it happens is um, giving a bit of background on the contrary and the opposite side of that coin. The players that we speak to say they don't know how they came about that, that trait, that skill to move timid into Tiger because they were never timid. Uh, we're asking an audience with um, that lives in an echo chamber, essentially, that never really had to move through any level of being a timid athlete because they always possessed something that you would might define as it, 
and that it being the psychological skill to look around and say, yep, your ass I can kick. Yep, no problem. I'm going to take you. You're a lunch money. Um, so given that we're asking that type of player, explain how this came to be, they really have no answer other than uh, I picked really good parents, right? Uh, now, on the other side of that, just littered throughout the psychological research is two distinct definitions of like a psychological makeup. There's trait and then state. And trait is someone that you might define as like just across an entire a variety of different situations, timid, someone that might go into a social setting and be the last person to talk, right? We call that person an introvert. But introverts can even be made comfortable in situations to where they'll demonstrate traits that are extroverted type of traits, a familiarity with their surroundings, a familiarity with the people to where they become the first person that talks. And that is state psychology. If you can create situations or to use a longer word, environments where you demonstrate someone that they're different than what their default behavior would be, then you start to grow more of that skill that you want to grow, whether that's social interaction, whether that's telling jokes uh, where you don't really feel comfortable telling jokes or telling stories, being a great storyteller. So in a golfer's training, without setting up or stacking the deck, so to speak, times and experiences where they do things different than they ordinarily would do them, like playing from the forward tees for their first six holes, making as many birdies as you can and repeating that process until you've made four out of six birdies to where you're four under par. And then you move back to the back tees and try and continue that same rate of offensive production would be a way to kind of upskill scoring. Uh, playing in front of crowds that you purposely bring out as part of your practice to get used to playing in front of crowds playing with live feed broadcast to the internet of your play because you've never played in front of an audience on TV before. These are, these are just a few ideas of how you would expose someone to a situation that would then help them grow more comfortable in that situation and turn their ordinary timid behavior into something other than being timid and start to kind of grow that skill of, um, I can in the most stressful situations because that's I mean, that's the, that's ultimately the difference that separates a really skilled player from someone that's skilled and plays at a world class level is an ability to trust that the skill is going to show up in the most pressure packed or stressful situations. The first tee shot, all the way through to when you're playing a good round, you got to close it out on holes 16, 17, and 18, all the way through to the final final round where you're playing in the leading group and you're trying to yeah take someone's lunch money. For lunch money, yeah, or maybe two million dollars or something like that. Exactly. Trophies, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, I'm Lee Westwood. You're listening to Three Off the Tee podcast. I just talk about putting briefly. Obviously, Jordan, one of the best putters um, that ever been. But on another kind of way of looking at it, I'm, we've all seen Jordan looking at the hole when taking maybe a three or four foot putt. And we've seen, or we've heard, I suppose, about Sergio and I think BJ Singh closing their eyes when they were putting um, and got on to win the Masters Championship. Can you, as a coach, give an insight as to what is the thoughts behind it? Yeah, it's, I said simply, it's 
uh, a way for a player to get out of their own way, a way, a way for a player to turn off one of the systems that we have, that there's, then is a feedback system that might interrupt um, the feedback loop that we would react to. Uh, the, for instance, I would give you if it's, is if we were in the same room and you weren't ready and I just tossed you a, a cricket ball or a tennis ball, you would react, wouldn't you? You would react by reaching out and trying to catch it. And you probably would catch it given, I, I don't know you, but, but given you're a golf pro, you're probably an immense athlete, right? Nonetheless, <laughs> that reaction. The best. Exactly. That reaction is informed by what? Your eyesight, your vision. And so there's this loop going on, feedback and feed forward. We react to what we see and what we see informs a choice that we make. And how many times have you stood over a putt to use putting as the example where you're like, "Mm, man, I didn't start that putter back as I normally would or as I wanted to but yet you carry on the stroke and you make the stroke and you make probably a, a pretty successful putt, right? It, it travels down your intended line with your intended speed and you, and you realize you got away with something right there. So that's both um, sometimes a superpower, meaning you can adapt with movements that color outside the lines or stray outside of the laneway that they're supposed to be in. But in some situations, it turns into uh a a debilitating, um, it's probably a better term for it than what I was going to use, but it becomes more of a distraction to where players see that and they start to adjust or adapt. And so when a person closes their eyes, they turn away or turn off that feedback loop. When a person looks at something other than the golf ball or the putter, then they also turn off that feedback loop. And that was the premise behind Jordan looking at the hole to be an athlete and to use whatever movement came out to allow him to make putts where otherwise he can see the putter out of his peripheral because it's such a short stroke and he might use the information to try and adjust or adapt the stroke um, to the detriment of the, I guess, the performance or the goal. Bringing it to the course, bringing it to a major championship or bringing it to any championship and looking at the whole, yeah. I mean, there's an awful lot of, um, you have an awful lot of bottle to do something like that. Yeah. Right? Like how long does it take for you to, I suppose, apply that because that that's a huge, I mean, I, I mean, the, the golfing public out there would be, what? Close your yeah. eyes, but these are the best players in the world. But yeah. it just goes to show the best players were, this is what they do. They will find a way, I suppose. Yeah, so I guess that's that whole, how long do I audition this thing before yeah. I step up on stage and do it with a live audience and then do it with a live audience where the performance that I'm about to give is the most important performance of, recent history yeah and so just speaking specifically uh he practiced it for maybe 18 months uh he then tried it first at the at&t congressional in 2013 and had some success with that event where by his measurement of success was the nerves reduced the anticipation that he was experiencing over the Mm -hmm. ball reduced and also the ball went in and so with that success it didn't take long under prime time lights for him to think, okay, cool. I'm going to try this uh, moving forward uh, more extensively, meaning in every round. And when the major championship came by, which that would have been probably May, I think, or June, it would have been the U S open that year at, I think it was Marion. And if it wasn't Marion? the U S open, at, yeah, if it yeah. wasn't the U S open at Marion, then it would have been the open championship at Muirfield. 
that he tried yeah. it, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it wasn't long before he had some success in competition. He's like, yeah, this is, is going to go into yeah, a major we're championship. Doing this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, let's go. Um, okay, look, talk to us about all this performance, uh, your relationship with uh, Corey Lomborg, and of course the the Earn Your Edge podcast, um, of which I must I must admit the the title of Decoding Excellence uh, is a very well thought of an appropriate title, I suppose, because as coaches, that's what we're trying to do is you know first of all learn, adapt, and impact that knowledge. Yeah. Um, and to helping our, our, our clients reach, um, I suppose, more enjoy, get more enjoyment and ultimately then reach their goals. So can you tell us about, um, yeah, also performance, how it came about and the last number of years and how it's grown to be uh, very, very successful? Yeah, I'll go to the podcast and Decoding Excellence first because it probably mm. answers even the first part of the question of how Altus came to be. And so uh, Decoding Excellence, we, we're looking to talk to those that are at um, the top of the top, right? They're the, uh, the pinnacle in their field, whether that's uh, authors, artists, sports people, business people, um, to hopefully learn some insights from their experience. And as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, when you're asking them questions, oftentimes they don't have the answers other than the answers from their own experience. You only know what you know. Um, and then it's, it's our job as coaches to hopefully um, kind of extract something tangible that then we can uh, add to the conversation for our listeners and um, then, yeah, I guess extract some sort of practical tips, practical application. Here's how you can apply this to your own life. Uh, but more importantly, the podcast where 76, 77 episodes in now uh, came about because we felt like the conversations that we always had had and that we continue to have gave us so much more ammunition as coaches in just one-to-one -one interactions with the players that we were teaching. And we felt like with the permission of those that we were having conversations with, it was um, kind of unjustified to keep it just under the roof of, of Altus, under the roof of just coach and client. Uh, we wanted to spread the message wider to reach a, a larger audience. Um, so that's the premise behind the podcast, Earn Your Edge. Uh, the premise behind Altus was to, again, me being only one person with limited capacity of 168 hours in one week and uh, 40 of those I'm sleeping unless I'm preparing for a podcast and staying up all night wondering what you might ask me. Um, <laughs> and probably 40 to 60 of those coaching golf. And so you have a limited reach, don't you? And you can put stuff out on YouTube, on Instagram, which we do. Um, or you can try and scale your business with like-minded individuals. And so uh, Corey Lundberg and Andrew Lewis, as you mentioned earlier, were the first two. And then Nick Dunn uh, is the fourth here in our Dallas facilities, of which we have two uh, kind of sticks and bricks at golf course facilities. And then we have an academy uh, led by Guillaume Bijot over just north of Paris, who is our European kind of headquarters. Um, and this came about because I feel like what we do as coaches is can be codified. Uh, what we do as instructors can be codified, right? We learn systems, we learn ball flight laws, we learn um, we learn MORAD, we learn stack and tilt, we learn this X and Y and Z to pick up, um, to fill our playbook, I'll call it, to fill up the many ways that we can influence a player's swing, uh, putting stroke, uh, short game performance to improve their scores. So, I never really wanted 
an academy to be built around my name because I didn't feel like one person had all the secrets. In fact, in our organization, everyone has the responsibility and the right to bring to the table new ideas from a variety of different places, whether that's a conversation they had with a client, a fellow coach that's not part of an organization, or something that they're uh, currently researching that they're interested in. And that way, we're all helping each other improve. And so Altus is a Latin word, which has its origin um, as a phrase meaning to grow. And that's what we endeavor to do for our clients as much as we do the same thing for ourselves and each other in the organization. Um, it's small by scale by when I would say scale relative to the David Ledbetter academies ac across the world or the Jim McLean academies across the world or an insert whatever um, uh, probably high profile coach from 10, 15, mm -hmm. 20 yep. years past. But that's for good reason as well that um, we still want to keep the type of service that we offer as custom as bespoke to use kind of a word from that's familiar to the, those in the UK as possible. And if we grow too large then it makes my job more difficult to manage everything around me and to help everyone around me. Right. So yeah, that's course, awesome. yeah. and that's on your edge. Brilliant. Um, well, look, you, you speak there about, you know, player or sorry, the, the staff, if you want, or the people around you, they're always open to bring things to the table and discuss. Maybe there is new methods, but um, I suppose we look at then Daniel Berger, a person that you've been coaching now a couple of years, and, he, you know, he's come right back into the scene, um, up into the top uh, 30 in the world, top 20, I think, in the world at the moment. And um, there was an interesting comment I think he, he made possibly last year where he said around the greens, and this is after starting working with yourself, that um, it's just been learning a different variety of shots that I didn't know I had. Hmm. And again, so players learning, I suppose, to hear such an honest and open um, remark about his own um, ability to play the game at the, the elite level. I suppose the golfing public would be surprised by such a statement. That, but then again, it illustrates, I suppose, that there's always more knowledge. There's always a better way for learning, uh, even for the world's elite. Yeah. Um, so I generally don't like to talk specifically about the clients that I work with. But what I yeah. can make in terms of general statements there is that Daniel's truth, his experience learning from me, as was his experience learning from Jeff Leachman, who has been his primary coach since he was 12 years old, um, has always been a experience or a journey of, I wonder what I can learn that's new today. I wonder if there are new tricks that I can add to my uh, magic bag. And that's very, very similar um, mindset, uh, thought process that, any elite player, whether it's 12 to 17 years old, or um, we had a conversation with Street, Steve Stricker just the other day. And he says, winter times for him are a time for discovery. He loves going back to Madison, Wisconsin, and using that time to do his practice. He says, during the, the season, I practice so very little. I conserve energy. I'm playing golf. I'm not in this discovery process. So even at I guess Steve is 53, maybe 54, maybe a little older than that. Um, he's still in this mindset of discovery. And so that was certainly true to Daniel's experience, starting with me, um, discovering there are certain shots that he 
didn't quite know how to hit, but he certainly had shots to, um, to use in given situations that were, uh, as you or I might evaluate with the wisdom that we have, square pegs in round holes. And we want round pegs in round holes, meaning there's a tool to use in a situation. It's probably better than one some players are using, but by gosh, they're so good that they can use that square peg and put it in that round hole and get it up and down to the to world-class levels, right? Um, yeah. So, so, so yeah, I think the, the learning piece for any player out there at any level is your practice needs to be just as much about honing what you know but also at the same time, it needs to be about discovery as well. Learning some mm. new, cool, new, new cool tricks, coloring outside the lines and doing some crazy stuff because um, behind trying something crazy is probably an insight that you never really would have found in doing anything other than crazy. Yeah, very much so, very much so. Um, I come along for a 30 minute or an hour lesson with Mr. Cameron McCormick. I suppose what um, we look at it from two or maybe three different perspectives, right? Um, a PGA Tour player, a college player, and say a 16 handicap. Um, what sort of percentage is it technical or um, psychological skill acquisition? I think it always starts off in trying to interview someone, have a conversation that then helps inform where it starts. Um, so that would be, what is it you're trying to achieve as a 16 handicap or a tour of a professional or as a junior? Um, what are the steps that led you here to me? Is it because you've reached a plateau or is it because you're trying to add to your existing knowledge base? Um, and then you're asking specific questions and making your own evaluations as a coach, or I am as Cameron McCormick, to discern whether there are associations in technique that then prevents someone from achieving what they want to achieve, whether that's a flop shot uh, over someone's head that's standing in front of them, whether that's uh, reducing the amount of curve that they have, whether that's finding the middle of the face on a greater frequency if a 16 handicap comes to me. Uh, but generally, if there is a shot pattern error, it can almost always be traced back to an association or a correlation to something technical. So very rarely is there not something embedded in a lesson that's not a technical adjustment, a technical revision of a concept that they may have um, misapplied or an absolutely new concept that they've never really heard or applied before. And so their kind of mind gets blown. On the other side of that, particularly for players that are trying to compete um, and we could just use compete in, as a loose phrase but yet we could also say that our 16 handicap player is competing as well. If they're trying to play on a Wednesday four ball or um, stroke play event or stable foot at their club, they have some pride on the line given that they want to uh, feel like they played well, particularly in their own eyes, but also in the eyes of other players. And the same would ring true with touring professionals. And so there's also the psychological component of how is this going to aid and abet you using some sort of swing feel, some thought to increase the chance of it repeating in high stress situations. So there is a psychological conversation that happens as well. But just even before that, um, as part of the evaluation process and understanding, which goes back to our, probably the initial question you ask, or one of the initial questions you ask of, as professionals, how do we continue to 
fill up our knowledge buckets to make sure that we have an understanding of functional capacity, right? If we're asking a person to move in a certain way, then we need to know the interacting segments. And those segments are both structural, so bones, as much as they are soft tissue, muscle, muscle tendons and ligaments and fascia that then allow for a person to do what we're asking them to do. So there's an underlying kind of knowledge base that the person may never see, or you may sprinkle a little bit in a little bit of the conversation in there like pixie dust, but really only with the objective to uh, do something that's singular um, and simple to it's in the delivery, help them. Really, is it? Yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's certainly in delivery. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, staying on that, accountability with a client, right? And again, we're looking for two perspectives, a 15 handicapper, 16 handicapper, and a tour player. Um, we're essentially, you know, the doctor or the physician prescribing the antibiotic to a certain point, and it's up to the patient to take it or not. Mm -hmm. um, it comes back for a repeat lesson, clearly hasn't done anything, Cameron, and they're, you know, they're expecting just to come along for a lesson um, and instant success. How do you have the conversation with that person to look, you've got to go away. We're only going to be doing the same thing again here until you actually do or work on it. And does that conversation sometimes transfer into Pete Cowan? I know you have done as well um, uh, oh, a few weeks ago and he, he gave a great example. He said, Graham McDowell had spoken to me. He was in the car driving past the driveway and he noticed uh, Pete, and he knows this Brooks Kopka and Ricky, and, and uh, they were over him with the hand like that, as in given out to him. Mm -hmm. um, accountability wise, what way or what way, do, I suppose, do you go about it um, from, from a tourist perspective? And maybe a 15 handicap. Yeah, general because conversation. It can be a frustration of the, the general pro. Like we've all had it. Oh, without doubt. Yeah. And the number of times you feel like. Like you're beating your head against a brick wall when you're seeing a recreational <laughs> client return back to you and not having spent any time uh, applying herself to uh, the recommended course of action from a from a meeting uh it's just it's conversation it's relationship you need to you put yourself in a place in that relationship or build a relationship to the extent that you can have those conversations but let's say the relationship's not built yet then it certainly comes back to a conversation about learning and having some uh, really great grounding in the science of learning but the science of learning is really intuition as well and asking um, any person how they've learned any skill in life i think rarely or never would be the answer that they learn something the first time in doing it um, whether that's a musical instrument whether that's a mathematical procedure whether that's a skill in um, in economics or accounting or surgery uh, or law for that matter um, uh, excellence or success only exists on the other side of that word in the alphabet that begins with W, which is work, right? So in the absence of work, you're going to find yourself in the same place. So more often than not, the conversation that I have with someone that I don't have a great relationship with or a developer relationship with is probably a better way to say it, is thinking of learning like a journey. Okay. Ian, you're standing in front of me right now and your objective is you're going to say you're going to be more competitive in your professional events in your home country by hitting it 15 yards further. In order to hit it 15 yards further, here's the X and Y of how that's going to happen. Let's think of that as you starting in um, Waterville, right? You're down the southwest of Ireland, but yet 
you getting 15 yards longer is like us driving, getting to Dublin. Dublin is the destination. I'm going to map it out for you. Here's the highway that we're going to take first. We're going to travel a little bit to the east before we hit that northeast kind of uh, road up through the center of the country. And it's going to take a while, right? We can't get to Dublin in 30 minutes or 45 minutes. It's going to take us a good five and a half, six hours, perhaps, depending on the amount of traffic. Now, what's another metaphor for the amount of traffic in this journey to learning? It's distraction, right? When you get distracted and start to do your own stuff rather than the stuff that I prescribed, that's you adding more traffic to the road, which is going to delay your journey. It's going to, it's going to cause you to have to travel rather than 60 or 70 miles an hour. You can be traveling at 40 miles an hour. What else is distraction? You deciding that there's a different road that you need to take other than the road that we've mapped out. So stay on the same road. Uh, don't get distracted by other people around you, other ideas around you. And certainly get in the damn car, turn the car on and start driving, which is work, right? It's the sweat equity. It's the time that you're going to spend on the range. So there has to be some sort of prescription of amount of work before we meet next. And there has to be a conversation about here is how a person learns and putting it into clear and relatable terms, which oftentimes is that journey that I just described. Now with a, with a, in a situation like Pete might've described, uh, Graham McDowell's driving along and he sees uh, Ricky and, and Brooks having a conversation where the two fingers are kind of wagging back at each other. That happens in strong relationships, not weak relationships. That is a strength, not a, a weakness or a crack. That's two people that can have a, a frank um, coming from the heart conversation about here are the expectations that we have of each other. And here's how you or I aren't fully fulfilling our role in this, whatever this may be. Um, so those conversations sometimes happen. We call those cage rattling moments or um, no offense meant come to Jesus meetings, right? Uh, and that's also a natural part that happens in any healthy relationship that there is conflict that you need to get beyond. Cause if you don't have those conversations, then wounds fester and a festering wound doesn't do anything to, um, to help progress happen. All it does is uh, hamper. Exactly. Yeah. No, very well put, very well put actually. Um, look again, often, often as coaches, we're telling our students, um, what to improve on. Um, I suppose it's a, a rarity that their students to or make them aware of something they shouldn't be doing but i you know i've seen the the seven deadly sins of high performance and i've read down through them which i think is excellent i think it's a subtle kind of way of putting uh, putting it in there and showing where, where people should not be going or what they should mm -hmm. not be doing um look we don't have time to go through them all could you pay out of a cat room, especially with the last deadly sin, which is pessimism, which I think is, uh, yeah, a definite con uh, contributor. Yeah. Uh, so any attitude of pessimism, any attitude of uh, uh, the, the sun, as I look outside right now, the sun's shining, but as I turn around, I see a couple of clouds and to consider that a cloudy day is a bad attitude to go through life. We would loosely term that person a bad learner uh, when they're not stepping to challenges with the optimism that, they can succeed, whether that success happens right now or whether it happens at some future point, it is going to happen. So uh, pessimism is probably the strongest of psychological contributors to someone not attaining whatever it is that they want to attain.
I think that ultimately, uh, when we're talking about someone getting better, they need to understand that they can surround themselves with all of the resources, whether those are tech resources in, I've got my iPhone and I can film my golf swing and I can send it across to my coach or I've got a track man and it tells me what my club is doing. But yet those are superfluous to uh, a work ethic. Those are additive, but they're not primary. The cornerstone of anyone getting better at anything goes back to the conversation we had just a few minutes ago, which is you got to do the work, right? You can have a great coach that maps something out for you that tells you how to get from where you are to where you want to go that creates that bridge, but you got to walk the walk rather than just talk the talk. And so that comes down to the sweat equity and the antithesis of sweat equity is sitting on your own hands, right? Um, so if you're someone that's inclined to sit on your own hands, then don't dream big, right? You better reduce the size of your dreams. If you're going to tell someone that you're going to do something and you don't, um, meet your own expectation and therefore the expectation that they would have of you. Uh, that, that's, that's the primary uh, rate limiter as it relates to someone achieving anything. You've been listening to three off the tee podcast with those boys over there and Peter Alice over here. Moving to Jordan a little bit. Um, I asked her listeners at the weekend, pass on a couple of questions that you might want to um, with the exception of one, I suppose, and, and you know where this is going, every one of the questions is understandably about Jordan and what's going on at the moment. I'd be killed if I didn't ask. But as a coach, I wasn't constant at the fact that, um, you know, there's a team, there's a bond between you, the player, obviously, and, and the whole team as well, confidentiality. But so I was trying to think in what kind of a diplomatic way can I put it, I suppose. What is the difference between a number one player in the world, the number 51 player in the world, and the number 79 player in the world? Um, as Jordan has occupied in the last four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I can speak generally, and then you can color, paint the picture specifically to insert any player, player X or player Y, into that. The answer being the difference between someone who climbs from 100 to inside the top 20 in the world is clearly less strokes. How they achieve less strokes is uh, enhancing a skill set that need enhancing, uh, learning new shots in the case of Daniel Berger that helped him go from a very average player around the greens to one of the best on tour around the greens. Um, learning a process that is their blueprint for practice that allows their innate skill to tighten up the range of possible outcomes. And so the example could be that a player can have great putting rounds, but does a player have great putting events? Well, if your speed control is left to chance, if you show up and you don't dial it in or tune that speed control pre-round. If you don't know what to do to tune that speed control pre-round, then you are in many ways leaving your touch on the greens to chance. And touch being one of the primary three skills of a skilled putter, I wouldn't want to leave that to chance. And so that's just another example of how a player would move from 100th to somewhere inside the top 20, top 10 by saving shots. How does the opposite happen then? The opposite happens by doing any of those 
or all of them in reverse measure. So knowing that you had a process or a blueprint for swing or movement and deviating away from that, knowing that you did things in practice, but you deviate away from doing those things in practice, possibly because you try something else in practice and it doesn't work, or possibly because you're distracted in doing other things in your practice that take you away from the things that you formerly did in practice. Yes, going back to our conversation in the middle of this recording, there are, there's always an ebb and flow in technique. Um, you might know Mark Bull, Mark Bull uh, down in the UK, uh, golf coach, uh, biomechanist, Dr. Mark Bull, uh, out of respect for his degree and his education, um, says you can't step into the same river twice. And that's very true, right? For, at, at the very cellular level to get really esoteric, we're constantly changing. And with that change, our body changes overnight, right? You don't sleep well. If you sleep in a, in a position or sleep poorly, your body's functional capacities are changing day to day. Um, that changes your golf swing, that changes your putting stroke, that changes how you move as a human. And so uh, Gary Player told me a story way back in, I think it was 2004 now. He says, you never own it, you're just renting it and the rent is due every day. And if a player doesn't recognize, any player that goes through this, I played at the world-class level and I'm not playing at the world-class level right now where I'm playing less at a world-class level than I formerly have, you can typically trace the clues back to in doing those three things that I said in some measure of reverse. Um, and they also have impact upon a person's identity, upon a person's confidence. Um, and that's part of a process of rebuilding as well. Uh, one would think that it's like a race car. Oh, oh, flat tire. Cool. We can just take, change the tire and it's back on the track and racing just the same way. But a player, the longer they play, carries with them burdens of history. Um, successful, can amplify confidence. Uh, something less than the success they expect, which is a very, very important word, our expect, expectation. Expect, yeah. Yeah. Um, make it a little bit more difficult to, for that changed spare tire or flat tire to put us back on the racetrack and race really fast again. So there's a psychological elasticity that tends to lag behind the, I'm doing the right things in training, I'm doing the right things in technique, um, and eventually the results will come. It goes back to optimism versus pessimism. It goes back to showing someone that there's hope versus an absence of hope and only an attitude of optimism and only an attitude of hope will sustain the effort beyond, um, yeah, the levels of disappointment that someone might experience relative to their expectation. And ultimately, that's what it is. It's, it's that optimism that, uh, yeah, it's never far away and it's right around the corner. Yeah. So how many conversations have I had in the 25 years that I've been doing this where someone plays a poor tournament? Happened just yesterday. Someone played a poor tournament. He's a 15-year-old kid here in Dallas, Texas. He goes down to Houston and plays a team event. He's one of the best kids in the state, and it's a state of 35 million people. So is that, is that the, the size of your country in terms of population? He's one of the best kids in your country. Put that into perspective. And he plays really, really poorly. He does not meet expectations. What's his response? He drives back the three and a half hours from Houston and goes immediately to the driving range. 
That's an experience that I know you've had. That's an experience I know I've had. And when he told me that, it gave me chills knowing that that's the attitude, that's the character that he demonstrates, that he brings to the table of grit and determination, of optimism that he's going to figure this that, this thing out. And that's the, 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 the message that any listener to any elite performer needs to embrace and live. Is there also part of it where, um, you know, it, it's inevitable. You've played maybe 30, 40 rounds, brilliant golf, and, and taking um, the, the 15-year-old kid as an example as well, that it's inevitable you're going to have an off day. So sometimes it's better to rest. That it, it, this, These things are just going to happen. Yes and no. Um, hmm. there's, there's some sort of therapy that we get as crazy I'm going to say athletes, but golfers. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy it, golfers. It's hitting in, range, isn't it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> in, in hitting the shot that you hit shitty three hours before, knowing that, oh, yeah, I, guess, I still got it. I still got it. Giving yourself that pain <gasps> back. Um, yeah. So, yeah, rest is important. Uh, there are also occasions, uh, less frequently, but there are occasions where uh, a player and I, male, female, young or old, have said, you know what? It's just not working out quite as well today as we probably anticipate. Let's just give it a rest. Let's go do something different and come back and see if we can conquer this thing at a later hour or another day. So there is some logic behind that, sure. Yeah, of course, I think so. <laughs> Sometimes a break maybe might be a good thing. But um, look, statistical analysis uh, important as coaches or even the general public. I think um, you know fans, etc. You go to the PGA Tour, LPGA Tour, European Tour, um, and we now have at our disposal a vast array of data about each area of a player's performance. Um, it's countless, often I'd say infinite, and as, as anyone can come up with a new stat, mm-hmm. just throw in an extra yard or take away a half yard. Right. Uh, how, how do you, uh, uh, with the player team, sift through that minefield of data, pinpoint where a player's strengths and um, weaknesses are, and consequently form a plan for improvement? Or is it, is it just down to that one category of stroke, strokes gained? Yeah, it's the most basic level of scoring average and it's relative to the field strokes gained for sure. And then as you're trying to, as you said, sift through the, uh, the mine of potential data down there, it's, uh, is the data telling a, a story that you can take action from or should take action from? And is the data at all predictive, uh, being mm-hmm. able to see uh, trends that if left alone will uh, turn in a positive direction or maybe have already turned in a positive direction and therefore require no um, immediate attention. Now, there's an art to that, and um, stats can be like the drunk using the lamppost or statisticians, statisticians and the way we use stats, like the drunk using the lamppost for um, support rather than illumination. Uh, stats are like a bikini. They show you a lot, but they don't show you everything, right? And you will never really see any, everything in the um, knowledge from numbers that you can glean. And the reason you don't see that is you're not inside the psychology. You're not inside the uh, strategic evaluation execution that the player in caddy or in uh if there's not a caddy talking about a youth player um inside their brain um in terms of how they were processing all of the um data points of air and wind and temperature and grass and lion flag location and where the hazards are right um all you're seeing is an x y of okay here's where i hit it and um here's the score i made from that location so a deeper conversation is required to really extract a great insight out of stats but they're a great starting point they're a fantastic starting point in the absence of them you're you've got your eyes closed 
You've got a dart in hand and there's somewhere on the wall out there. You don't even know where the wall is. You're throwing a dart on a dartboard and you'll go to the driving range or you go to the putting green and you won't know whether the work you're doing is truly going to be impactful. So as a point, uh, an important point inside this kind of matrix of things, uh, assortment of things that a developing player should be doing if their aspirations at a play at a world-class level, whether that's an amateur or professional, then they definitely should be doing some sort of level of sophisticated analysis that might require some Excel spreadsheet or uh, online stat program input, right? It's just another point yeah. of work that needs to be done in order to know that you're aiming at the right targets with full illumination. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I look at one other thing, I suppose, and uh, we'll give you a break, I suppose, is that approaching major championships with players um, on the course, on the range, maybe Wednesday, Thursday morning, uh, before round, you're observing a player hitting a few shots, notices a slight, maybe technical flaw. What do you do? Do you jump in? Um, or do you like players to have a technical thought? Uh, or I suppose, do you get a player to maybe form a new image? Is it down to the DNA of a person? Or do you just leave well alone because this is a Thursday morning and you just, maybe a technical thought isn't the greatest thing, but how do you approach it? Because with such a player that's building for major championships, it's, it's, it's obviously, there's only four of them in the men's game, five of them in the ladies' game, and um, they're there to perform and they want to perform their best. And how, how, do, you, how do you approach it then? Uh, two things that I would uh, say in response to that is, is the player aware of something that they may be doing that's deviating out of uh, functional range that they typically fall in, in movement of body and movement of club? If they're not aware and the ball's behaving as they expect, then absolutely not. We won't touch it. You've got a very, very small time window of about 30 minutes in ball striking warm-up and even shorter than that in short game warm-up and putting warm-up to uh, make an adjustment. Uh, the second part of that is, is the ball flight telling them that something's amiss, meaning if the ball's not behaving as they expect, then clearly there is gonna, their mind is tuned um, to, here's what I want to happen, here's what's happening, coach, help me. <laughs> and so therefore you're called to action if the ball's not behaving. And as you're called to action, is there a workaround that means that they could use the ball flight if it's functional by aiming in a different location for the rest of the round uh, or for the entire round, I should say. And we make the necessary corrections. We've got more time and we're not warming up, right? Warm up is warm up. Or is it so simple as to give them a simple cue, a cue that they know, a feel that they know that they can then go play with? That's more often than not the solution. Um, the second most often solution is, I don't even know they're doing something different, but they're so darn talented and they're still making club ball contact in such a way as the ball is behaving. And so they're happy as a pig and you know what, to go out there and use what they have to get the job done. And then when you get done with the round, you reevaluate, you're still moving how you were moving this morning. Okay, you are. Let's do this, meaning X, that we know has worked before, to give us back what we expect in terms of movement that, that means that you don't have to use your talent and uh, God-given ability or well-trained skills to um, make the X minus one pattern work, right? Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's having experience in those situations too to um, to have the confidence to know that, um, the person in front of you can make a small adjustment in feel, in swing sensation, uh, and make it work to great effect. 
Yeah, okay, definitely. Um, last link, spoke with Justin Parsons last week. We were talking about the whole distance, not even debate, just talking about distance in general. Um, and he said that the, the way players are being now, I and mean, yes, you can talk to Bryson, but maybe the, the, the way players and the physiology in the last 10 years has been building to a point that if, if it keeps going down this line, like the person, the physiology of a person is just not equipped for this kind of, um, I suppose, barrage of, of movement, of, of stretching muscles and bones, contortion, everything to last a long time that we're more looking possibly at a golfer's career in the same way maybe of a tennis player's career or a soccer player's career that you know just after 40 their body just won't be able to do what it's doing it's um, certainly, it's a, yeah that's cer certainly cer certainly possible um but going back to just very very basic anatomy um basic anatomy would teach you that you the way your bones uh, grow stronger, your bones. So the way your bones build greater strength in both the, um, the airy cor um, uh, cortical, that's actually not, that's wrong. Anyway, let's go, let's go back. The way your bones get stronger is by enduring stress. The muscle pulls mm, on yeah. the bone through the tendon. So the more weight you lift, the stronger the bones become. The more weight you lift, the stronger the muscle becomes. The more, the more weight you lift, if done, uh, within uh, your functional capabilities, I mean, you're not moving through ranges that then uh, push up against a structural challenge, a hip impingement, a shoulder impingement, et cetera, et cetera, then you can only strengthen safely. So there's two sides of that. And Bryson's side is he's doing it so responsibly with Greg Boscoff's help He's doing it responsibly with a variety of other people's help that I'm not so certain that he is going to truncate or dramatically shorten his career as much as some people might say. The other side of that is the side that says, who cares, right? If I have a shorter time window, <laughs> but yet I'm playing better over the next 10 years versus 40 years, I'd much rather work 10 years and make 5x the money, or if I make the same money, if I make the same amount of money over five years or 10 years versus a 25-year golf career, I'll take the same amount of money over a shorter time period and do something else with my life. Of course, I suppose. You see success imagery that's there in front yeah. of you. How are you going to say, ah, sure, I'll get it, to it in 20 years' time? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So on one front, I can see, yeah, without real understanding, because we're all... Um, an N of one, we're, we're unique to ourselves without understanding what someone's uh, structural um, and myofascial capacity is, uh, where their limitations are and how those limitations could be um, modified, softened, uh, resolved. Uh, that strength training is doing just as much good in terms of delaying injury onset uh, as someone could argue that it is pushing someone closer to a point of injury. Uh, so, so often, right, the, in the conversation on the more you bend a paperclip, the closer you get to that paperclip breaking. That's a really, really poor analogy or metaphor, right? Because the more you yeah, stress, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? When you stress paperclip, yeah. sure, you're, you're exposing a, exposing, in fact, you're creating a functional weakness in the steel and the metal, right? But you're not doing that. 
in bony structure or soft tissue. In fact, as you stress it, you're, you're strengthening, as I already mentioned. Yeah, okay. Last section. Uh, what we do here is a quick nine holes, nine questions, uh, kind of quick fire round. And what we'll do is we'll ask you to play your favorite back nine, and I'll give you a question for each one. Yeah, so your oh gosh. Nine. All right, uh, hole 10, Augusta National. Augusta National, right. Highest point of your career? Highest point of my career? The Open Championship at uh, Brookdale. It's the only time I've been at an event when a client has won the event. That's amateur and really? professional. Yes. Really? I mm -hmm. thought you, okay, okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. What, what a finish, what a finish. Yes. Um, what did you feel when he was over on that, the, the, the practice ground and hitting that second shot, which was just amazing. And to go from there, what was it? Eagle, birdie, bird. I mean. How did I feel? I felt sick. <laughs> Where's the bucket or where's the toilet so I can throw up? <laughs> there was there was vomit right back here. <laughs> Nauseating, wasn't it? That what oh you're my god! <laughs> um, lowest point of your career? Huh, was it that nauseating feeling? Though? <laughs> Probably yeah, the same event, mate. <laughs> <laughs> lowest point of my my career was probably i was i was no i was yeah i was there 2016 at augusta i, I saw the shot on number 12 yeah 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 um i mean there there are so many losses in a career of either as an athlete or as a coach that that one stands out because it was traumatic for everyone involved it was traumatic for him for sure and for michael for sure we can't fathom touching the trauma that those guys experience, or, or specifically Jordan. Um, yeah, that one's a hard one to answer because there are so many kind yeah. of low points. Because you, you you go you do something like coaching or like performing with the expectation that's always going to be good, right? That goes back to the optimism. You don't do something thinking that it's not going to succeed, but invariably success is really hard to come by doing it at when you're the tip of the spear as a player or when you're doing it for a tip of the spear player as a coach. Um, so you experience many more losses and they kind of all blend. Yeah. That's it's golf though, isn't it? I mean, we spend, I remember Greg Norman saying oh, 20, 30 years ago, you know, golf is the only game in the world where the number one player is 90% of the time. And yeah. I think it's the same for a coach as well. It's, it's, it's the losses, the losses, but the, the wins hopefully eventually come. But I mean, you spend more of your time trying to come up with answers as to what just happened. Right, exactly. Yep. Okay. Uh, favorite week of the year? It doesn't have um, to be golf. It's any week that I've been on the road for more than a week, perhaps two weeks, and I get to see my family again. Doing what you do at a tour level when you travel so much, it absolutely sucks having to only interact through a, a, a computer screen on Zoom or, or FaceTime, absolutely sucks. And so the blessing for me out of COVID is the amount of time that I was able and still am able to spend at home and my relationship with uh, my wife, two kids and two dogs is better than it's ever been. Yeah. Particularly the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> we'll add it to that. Don't worry, don't yeah. worry. Um, okay, you're sitting on the range, 30 minutes to kill, right? But you are looking at a player. Uh, so we're not going to say you're going to have a sandwich or anything like that. What player would you like to watch? What player what's, excites what's, you? Swing. Oh, swing. Okay. Mm. What player excites me? Well, clearly Bryson would capture my attention attention currently to be able to, to see that I, to say that I witnessed the prodigious ball speed at 200, 201 miles an hour, 
which I can check that box and until he caps, until he reaches 210, he won't get, he, he won't get my eyes anymore. I haven't mentioned that to him, but I'll mention in passing next time, Bryce. I'm not going to watch it anymore until you, until you show me a 210. As soon as you go 210, I'll, I'll give you some eyes. Um, I love watching other players and other coaches work because that's what I do. I, yeah. I've, seen, I've seen world's best ball striking. Uh, so there's no aesthetic beauty that I would look for. Yeah, sure, I might um, glance eyes at Adam Scott or Rory McIlroy. Um, there's probably some level of uh, envy maybe in the way they move. Mm. But I'll look at a coach and a player on the range more so than looking at a player with a pretty swing more, because they, all, they can all hit it. Yeah. Even though you might say, well, there's a statistical ranking of the best greens in regulation and the worst greens in regulation, the best driver and the worst driver, they can all hit great shots. Yeah. It's just at what frequency or what rate and how precise those misses are that differentiates them. So, yeah, my, my eyes would go to the coach that's working on the range more so than a player. Okay. Uh, best round of golf you've ever seen, up close or on TV, either one, doesn't matter. Hmm. Yeah. I told so, you it's rapid fire. Yeah. Uh, best round of golf I've ever seen. That's a hard one because I've seen so many good ones as you're out there working. Um, the round that Jordan played and shot seven under last year at the Farmers, having very little in terms of control of the ball was an impressive round. If you ever get to talk to Justin Rose and ask him the same question of impressive rounds where someone didn't have it, I'm sure that one would come to mind. Um, but I've also seen the same side of that. The same player have mm. such immensely good ball control when he's making a charge with uh, at, at Augusta, chasing down Patrick Reed on that same day at eight exactly. Yeah, I was going to mention. So uh, those are really impressive. But you spend any time out there and you see impressive, and it becomes so routine in your mind that um, only scoring really catches the eye. So super low rounds uh, would be uh, the ones that come to mind. Um, uh, Jordan making that par an 18 at Augusta too. Um, gritty, very gritty. Which was after which, uh, 18th second round uh, at the Masters this year. Kind of a fluffed, he's kind of a chip and made that 10 for put to make the cost. Oh, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I found the scariest moment of your life. Uh, I was 17 years old and I was in South Africa. It, I graduated from high school at 17. I turned 18 in South Africa, April. Um, and we, the drinking age in South Africa, I think even still to this point, we're in Johannesburg, was 18 years old. And uh, yes, I was breaking the law. Had a few pops. We're coming home from a bar. It's roughly two o'clock in the morning and the Volkswagen bug. And I'm in with two of my buddies and uh, two girls at the time gets essentially ambushed by some, uh, some people and, uh, clearly a fight ensues. And this is in the height of we'll call a state of emergency, the fall of apartheid. Mm. And no one can put themselves in the shoes of anyone that's underprivileged without walking in those same shoes. So I, I don't, uh, tell a story for anything other than that was, the only moment that I feared for my life. And fortunately the police arrived pretty quickly because the attendant, the gas station called the police and uh, yeah, they, they broke it up before it got too out of hand, but yeah, two o'clock in the hey. morning at a, at a country with such civil unrest and rightful hey. civil unrest. Yeah. Being a kid has never experienced that green from Australia where um, the, the 
greatest exposure you have to violence exists on TV. Yeah, you're just not ready for that. <laughs> okay. Um, favorite Irish course? Favorite Irish sport? Is that what course. you're saying? No, oh. course. Whoa. Favorite Irish. Uh, Royal County down with a uh, close second, if not rivaling it, Portrush. Portrush is absolutely amazing. Yeah, I haven't, pl- I haven't played enough. There are so many good ones, though. I mean... Have you uh, been over much, Cameron? Yeah, yeah. So whenever for the Open, uh, played a number of courses yeah. in advance. And then I took a trip there with a friend of mine, Nathan Graff, who's a fellow, our colleague here in, uh, in Texas. Uh, and we did a about a 14-day trip, played in Scotland and in Ireland. And we played a variety of courses in the Southwest. Okay. Our favorite sco- course in Scotland you played? Our uh, favorite... The, the favorite course that I'd go back to in Scotland time and again is always St. Andrews. Just enjoy playing yeah. it in a variety of yeah. different conditions. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Last one. Uh, dream four ball. I was asked this one recently and it was an obscure list. It was, um, who did I mention or who would I mention now? Um, I like to have it a lot. Yeah. yeah. So Bill Murray would certainly be on that list. Um, Eddie Murphy was always an Eddie Murphy fan, uh, having a laugh. And if he played golf and we could reincarnate him, bring him back to life, Nelson Mandela, just fascinating journey, fascinating life experience that you just love to spend four hours with, not to ask them a bunch of questions, just to um, sit and experience wisdom. Because anyone that's that's gone through what someone like that has gone through would be um, full of wisdom. Yeah, yeah, just, just to be in his presence, just yeah, to be in his presence. Sure. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I did skip one. Are you a Three Musketeer bar or a Reese's chocolate peanut butter cups man? Uh, neither. Uh, if I'm going to have any sweet or chocolate, it's just going to be a, a French truffle. Just dark, dark chocolate, melt in your mouth. Just sit it on your tongue, and it just, just mm, there it is. <laughs> Cameron McCormick, um, listen, thanks very much for your time. It's been a pleasure and uh, we wish you all the very best uh, for the winter. I hope the weather gets warmer there as opposed to ourselves over here. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, look, it's great talking to you, Cameron, and uh, we'll get you on again and again, as I said. Measure, okay. Many, many thanks for your time. Uh, all the best, Ian. Thank you. enjoyed that chat with Cameron um, I strongly suggest that you check out their Earn Your Edge podcast uh, both Cam and Corey there have unquestionably the best guest list in the world of golf with recent tour players like uh, Justin Thomas, Matt Fitzpatrick uh, Adam Scott uh, Xander Shoffley, Eddie Pepperell Jordan Speed. Uh, their most recent episode was a great chat actually with US Ryder Cup captain Steve Stricker that's episode 47 everyone uh, we have the great Dave Pelts on next week and our we're going to do a Christmas special. Why not? Everyone else is doing it, so we might as well do it. Uh, we'll have a review of the year um, with a very special guest. Massive giveaways. Actually, we've Cleveland wedges, Fook Joy shoes, um, loads of gloves, um, and lots more. So stay tuned for that. Uh, for all 47 episodes, please visit www.3offthetpodcast.com. Or if you want to get in touch with me, just email me at ian at 3offthetpodcast.com or harry at 3offthetpodcast.com. Until the next time, stay safe and enjoy your day. Christy O'Connor, second to the 18th.
Class, baby. Touch your class. Touch your class. 